Well, good afternoon, everybody. Really happy to have all of you with us for this event, uh, The Vanishing Trial, uh, which is a documentary that was created by the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers and Families Against Mandatory Minimums. Um, we're here to discuss what I think is one of the most concerning, and I would even go so far as to say pathological features of America's criminal justice system, um, which is the almost complete displacement of the constitutionally prescribed mechanism for adjudicating criminal charges, which is of course the jury trial, uh, with an extra constitutional mechanism uh, that we call somewhat euphemistically in my judgment, plea bargaining. More than 95% of all criminal convictions today are obtained not through constitutionally prescribed jury trials, uh, but through guilty pleas. Uh, I think this raises a host of concerns uh, just on its face, but then as we will see, and as some of you have already seen if you've watched the video, um, the particular way in which uh, plea bargains are obtained, the techniques that are used by prosecutors and in some cases judges to encourage defendants to waive their right to a jury trial and simply condemn themselves instead, I think are deeply concerning. Uh, and again, for my money, I think this is arguably one of the most significant pathologies in the criminal justice system. Uh, I'm joined today by uh, a, um, a panel of distinguished and uh, I have to say also good friends, some of them new, some of them not as new. I'm gonna introduce them very quickly in the order in which uh, they're going to uh, start off. And we'll each, uh, they'll each speak for uh, maybe five minutes or so and then we'll have a little bit of discussion among the panelists and then we'll start taking questions uh, and please feel free and please uh, we encourage you to uh, reach out to us with your questions. You can do so on Facebook or through Twitter. Use the hashtag CATOCJ, C-A-T-O-C-J, uh, and we'll look forward to, um, uh, to getting questions from the audience. So without further ado, uh, our first speaker is going to be Kevin Ring, who is the president of Families Against Mandatory Minimum, one of the people responsible for creating the video that hopefully most of you have seen. He is a graduate of Syracuse University and Catholic University Law School, uh, and for better or for worse, one of the stars of the Vanishing Trial video. Um, so we'll get to hear from Kevin about his firsthand experience uh, with plea bargaining and with the criminal justice system. Our next speaker is David Marcus, a Harvard Law graduate, uh, former associate at Williams and Connolly, and uh, also spent some time with the Federal Public Defender's Office in Miami, Florida. He is currently a criminal defense lawyer uh, in Miami. And um, I'm gonna go ahead and say this, David, uh, I am convinced that if I ever did get in trouble where I needed somebody's services uh, or the services of a criminal defense lawyer, you would be uh, at the very top of my list. And I think that's probably the single best compliment I can pay a criminal defense lawyer. Thank so thanks so much for, for being with us. And then finally, my good friend, uh, Professor Rachel Barco, uh, who is a, a law professor at NYU University, one of the country's foremost uh, experts on our criminal uh, justice system, and the author, author of a truly fantastic book that I had the pleasure of discussing with her at a Cato event uh, last year. The book is called Prisoners of Politics, Breaking the Cycle of Mass Incarceration. Uh, thank you to all three of you. I'm really excited uh, to be here, and I think we should just dive right in. Kevin, would you like to start us out? Sure. Um, thanks for having me. Thanks to the other guests. You know, we've been doing a lot of these events around the film, and I was really looking forward to doing this one with Cato for a couple of reasons. One, because Clark, you personally and Cato have done amazing work at exposing the problems of the trial penalty and just coercive plea bargaining. So 
I'm grateful for your work on this. And, you know, when we had our first panel discussion on this, we included you because I thought you were such a leading voice on this. I'm also glad to be here with Cato because FAM was founded 29 years ago by a woman, Julie Stewart, who was working at Cato at the time. Her brother was arrested and charged with selling marijuana in Washington state, which sounds antiquated today, but he was subject to a five-year mandatory minimum sentence. And she thought this can't be happening. Uh, he made a stupid mistake, first time offender, and it was marijuana. Um, but she soon realized that a judge had no discretion. And unless her brother was willing to implicate others, friends in the town, then he was going to serve that time. And of course, he ended up doing that. And she thought, if, if I'm going through this, a lot of families must be going through the same thing because of these mandatory sentencing laws, particularly at the federal level. And she started FAM. And over the years, our goal has been to highlight these stories of individual injustices, not as anecdotes, but as illustrative of this larger problem. And that's what we try to do with this film. You know, we have been pointing out the problems of mandatory sentences for these past three decades um, and talking about how they do produce injustices that we see, you know, all the time um, for families and communities. But the trial penalty and mandatory minimums role in creating the trial penalty has created this systemic problem. So you have, you know, if you watch Law and Order, um, you know, you, you're used to seeing charges brought, police make an arrest, you know, prosecution happens, and every episode ends in a trial. And now we live in a world where, you know, 3% of all criminal cases end in a trial. So something is absolutely, you know, changed. And I can't think of a constitutional right, individual fundamental right, that we forfeit with such frequency as our trial right. And of course, I went through this personally, as uh, is seen in the film. But the thing that struck me even as I was going through this was just the idea that we had this constitutional system and that seeks to protect liberty through checks and balances. So I worked for Congress and, you know, Congress is supposed to make the law decide what's illegal, set punishment ranges, prosecutors bring charges. And then you have judges, you know, who are supposed to uh, decide punishments. And in a rational system, what you would have is a judge or a court would look at all the factors, all the circumstances of each crime and each defendant, because there are almost no two crimes that are the same. And this country prizes itself on individual responsibility, personal responsibility, individual accountability. And so you want to be judged as an individual. Individuals commit crimes. Individuals should be punished as individuals. And mandatory minimums, of course, throw that completely away and say that we have a one-size-fits-all punishment that will work in all cases, which clearly isn't the case. Um, but I think the perversion that exists because of the trial penalty says something even worse, um, which says this fundamental idea of fairness and proportionality that I think most Americans have and are right to assume, and certainly I would have before I went through this process, is that somebody who does something that is minor, for instance, uh, you know, maybe possession of a small amount of drugs, or um, you know, misstating something on their taxes, if it's minor, uh, all the way up to more serious offenses, assault and murder and the rest, that we have a sense of fairness and proportionality that says, 
it's going to depend on who that person is, not their, not any immutable characteristics, of course, but what, what was their motive? What was their thinking? What, what led them to that? Did they have diminished capacity? Did they know what they were doing? What, what is sort of their intent there? But then also, what's the harm that they caused? And we want a judge in a court to consider all those factors and fashion an appropriate sentence. And you might even think for certain crimes and types of defendants, there's sort of this platonic sentence or justice that would be meted out that would say, based on all this. Now, we may not all agree what that is, but we'd say, you know, if this person did this, this is the right punishment. And what the trial penalty, thanks to mandatory minimums, does is it takes all that careful calibration, all the consideration of the person's unique um, history, circumstances, motives, intentions, the, the sort of specific circumstances of the crime, who was harmed, what happened, um, how were others punished as, you know, in similar cases. It takes all of that careful calibration and just tosses it outside the w window and says, did they plead guilty or not? That's what matters. Did they give up their constitutional right to trial? Because that and nothing else is basically what we're going to base the sentence on. So if you watch The Vanishing Trial, you know, the idea that you'd go to an Eric Wyant, a prosecutor would, and said, you know, based on you shooting that firearm in the air as a warning shot, we think that the public could be kept safe through three years of punishment, three years in prison. But the minute he decides, no, I'm going to contest those charges and go to prison, he ends up with a 20-year sentence. And what should be incredibly clear is that there's that 17-year delta uh, the 17 extra years he is spending in prison right now, because he's still in prison, have nothing to do with justice or public safety. And the cases of uh, Sandra Avery, who's in the movie, and Chris Young, both of those people got life sentences for drug offenses. Now, in both cases, they had more culpable co-conspirators who got less time, who, who were, you know, were serving much less than life sentences. But Sandra and Chris were both sentenced to die in prison solely because they exercised their constitutional right to trial. So any rational system that says, you know, that pretends to care about fairness and proportionality would not produce outcomes like that. But it happens all the time because even the threat of mandatory sentences, even when people don't go to trial, it requires every plea agreement to be a little higher. So we're jacking up punishments across the board. I don't wanna go on too long because I wanna get to questions, but I just wanna say, obviously my story is in the film. And when I talk about it, the one thing I would say to people is, you don't have to believe that I was innocent. I do, I, I still do. I fought those charges not as a game. I did not want to go to trial. I knew that the cost would be overwhelming. Financially, I have two young kids and a very nervous wife. And I had law and order friends saying to me, people I'd worked with on Capitol Hill who were really, you know, total conservatives who said, just plead and make it go away. They didn't think I was guilty. They just didn't think it was worth it. And that struck me as so fundamentally wrong. And no matter what you thought of my case, it just can't be the situation that the right punishment was either no prison time or 20 years, depending solely on what I did. And so, you know, that was one example. The movie talks about other examples. And I look forward to this discussion because I think we have to address this, as you said, a total perversion of our justice system. And thanks for having me. 
Thank you, Kevin. Uh, before we go to David, let me ask um, um, a question that's already come in that's sort of a, a practical question. First of all, I think it's an absolutely fantastic film. I hope that everybody uh, has had a chance to see it. Um, what is the plan for distributing the film? That's a question that's already come in. Will this be on Netflix? What uh, is the, you know, sort of the big picture in terms of getting the, the word out to as many people as possible with this wonderful piece of work? I have a meeting right after this <laughs> to discuss that. Uh, we're learning the, the, the sort of how the mechanics of this. We're going to have an educational distributor who's going to make sure this gets to law schools and um, educational institutions around the country. In addition to that, I think this will be on Amazon Prime soon. Fantastic. Really glad to hear that. Um, David, uh, you're a practitioner, and um, you uh, have the sort of unique perspective of someone who um, is in the trenches, uh, but unlike a defendant, um, you know, you're somebody who sees a lot of this. Um, every client, I assume, that you represent, or just about every client that you represent, finds himself in a position uh, where they're put in this dilemma of deciding whether or not they're going to take off in a very favorable deal if they agree to condemn themselves, plead guilty, and exchange the possibility or the, the, uh, the right to trial possibility of acquittal and freedom for the certainty of conviction and punishment. Can you tell us what it's like to be in that position and what your concerns are about the current system? Sure. So, so first of all, thank you, Clark and, and Cato for putting this unbelievable panel together. It's, it's really an honor and a privilege to be with, with you and Rachel and Kevin. And um, so thank you. And, and it's such an important topic. Um, why do so many cases plead out and not go to trial. And, and, and I think it's because the criminal justice system is geared towards forcing everyone to plead guilty. Even the innocent uh, are, are coerced to plead guilty. And so what does it take to go to trial? It takes a tremendous amount of courage from the client. It takes support from the family. And it takes a little bit of insanity, a little bit of craziness from the client because of the way the system's set up. And I just want to go through, I, I made a top 10 list of reasons cases are, are, are sort of coerced into the plea as opposed to trial. And I want to tick through those. We could probably spend an hour on each of them, but I want to go through them just to highlight them. Uh, the first one is charge bargaining. So if you plead, prosecutors often tell you and your client, you will be charged only with this minor crime where the consequences are much lower. Whereas if you go to trial, we're going to charge you with 10, 15, 20 felonies, and you could go to jail for 20, 30 uh, years or life. They also say, we'll only charge you if you plead. But if you go, if you push us, you know, we may have to look into your family. We may have to look into these other people. We may have to look at your secretary. Um, so, so there's all these other pressures regarding charge bargaining to plead guilty. Number two, arrest. Arrest is done uh, by SWAT teams early in the morning, 6 a.m. in front of your children. Kevin describes that on uh, the, the, the movie. There's no reason for this. There's no reason to have SWAT come at 6 in the morning and arrest you in front of your family. Uh, in 98% of the cases, there's no reason for it. Just to give you an idea, they did it with Felicity Huffman, of all people, at 6 a.m. The SWAT came. They tried to do it with Aunt Becky. We don't need to be arresting Aunt Becky at 6 a.m. Uh, luckily, she wasn't home and she got to surrender. But we use the SWAT as a way to intimidate people, to show who's boss. It's terrible. There's no reason for it. Uh, number three, finances. They freeze your assets. Um, 
if you push to go to trial. Of course, if you plead guilty, you can work out, well, you surrender this amount of assets, we'll let you keep this. But if you fight, we're gonna freeze everything and put you at a huge disadvantage. Number four, bail. So if you agree to plead, you will be permitted to stay out on bond. You will get a, an agreed uh, bond amount, usually a signature bond, uh, where you can stay out until it's time of your sentence. If you decide to fight uh, and go to trial, they will ask for detention in almost all cases. In fact, six out of every 10 people in jail are pre-trial detainees. It costs the United States $14 billion a year to keep people in jail pre-trial. It's insane. Just to give you a, a sense um, of how this has changed over the years, I'm watching a movie on Netflix right now called Watching Fear City. Uh, it's called Fear City, I'm sorry. And Paul Castellano, the boss of bosses for the mob, was given a bond back in the 80s. Now that, of course, would never happen. Uh, Fat Tony got a bond too. Uh, but now there's no such thing as bond if you want to fight. Number five, discovery. I mean, we could spend hours and hours and hours talking about discovery in the federal system. It's a joke. Uh, you get witness statements called janks at the time the witness testifies. You're put at a huge disadvantage. In civil cases, you get to take depositions because it's about money. In criminal cases, no depots, uh, even though your liberty is on the line. Think about that. You're not allowed to take the deposition of the person who's going to be pointing the finger at you. And by the way, that's number six. Cases are built on cooperating witnesses who have such a huge incentive to lie because now the system is set up so that if you plead and cooperate, you're going to get monster reductions. Um, all you have to do is point the finger at someone else who's going to go to trial. And so when somebody decides they want to go to trial, you will see tons of people at the jail jump on the bus and start pointing the finger at the person going to trial to, in order to get their sentence reduced. Number seven, Brady material. I, I cannot think of a case that has gone to trial where the defendant has lost, where Brady information hasn't come out after the fact. Um, it happens all the time in trials and prosecutors aren't reprimanded for this. Um, and cases don't get reversed for late Brady disclosures. So the prosecutors are taught nothing will happen to the case if Brady isn't disclosed pre-trial. And I know Clark could go on for a long time about um, the prosecutorial immunity for not turning over Brady. They get a free pass, no bar uh, consequences, nothing happens to them professionally. So there's all the incentives not to hand over Brady material if you're going to trial. Number eight, and I'm sorry for going through these so quick, but I, I could uh, go on and on about these, but I wanted to talk about at least 10 of them. Number eight, and probably the biggest one are the sentencing guidelines, which came around in the 1980s. If you decide to go to trial, those guidelines will be manipulated so high um, so that they punish you. And Kevin talked a little about this. Whereas if you plead, they're manipulated so that you get a very low sentence. And we can use the example of Roger Stone and Michael Flynn. Flynn pled guilty and the prosecutors agreed that his guidelines for pleading guilty were zero to six months, months. Um, Roger Stone went to trial for also similar offenses, making false statements. And after trial, first time nonviolent offender, his guidelines were seven to nine years so you can see the difference of pleading guilty and cooperating versus going to trial um, in that in those two cases. And I know there's a lot of uh, controversy about 
Flynn and and also Stone, but just looking at the guidelines of plea versus trial, I think it's it's pretty stark. Number nine is acquitted conduct. If you go to trial, you have to run the board to win. In other words, if you're charged with 10 felonies and you win nine of 10, you can still be sentenced on those nine acquitted counts. It's insane. If you talk to people who are who are out on the street, if you talk to the normal citizen and you ask them, can you be sentenced for something you've been acquitted of? The, all of them will say no, but the law allows it. And finally, harmless error on appeal. So if you lose a trial and you and the judge makes mistakes, um, you have to show that the error was not just harmless. And it's an almost impossible standard to meet. So the decks are so, so stacked against you if you go to trial. Those 10 are just some of the reasons, and I could have gone on and on about them. Um, but th the system is set up to coerce folks to plead guilty, and it's a shame. We should have more trials. We're going to talk about that in a minute, about why we should have more trials. But those are just some of the reasons why people are forced to plead guilty. Hey, well, thanks so much. Um, Rachel, uh, you are sort of our policy expert who can address this from, you know, sort of 30,000 feet. Um, why don't you talk to us about sort of plea bargaining as policy? Uh, and I know in your wonderful book, um, Prisoners of Politics, you also mentioned the role that mandatory minimums play. Uh, so maybe you could touch on that as well. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Thank you. And thanks for including me. This is uh, something I would be watching even if I wasn't a participant. So I'm <laughs> I'm glad to have kind of a front row seat. Um, so, you know, I think that Kevin and David have already touched upon uh, some of the things that I wanted to say. So I'm just going to kind of emphasize a few more uh, of those points and go into detail. I mean, this is not the system that the framers of our country imagined. Uh, we were supposed to have the community as a critical check on the government in criminal cases. So the jury trial was put in the constitution even before the Bill of Rights. And you know, all over the Federalist Papers, you have the framers talking about a concern that the government was gonna be too severe. And what ends up happening over time is this need for efficiency, for processing cases quickly, meant that you had judges agreeing to these deals, that deals uh, that prosecutors would strike. And it became an established part of the system that ultimately the Supreme Court accepts as lawful, even though I will add, it is really an anomaly when it comes to constitutional rights. As Kevin pointed out, you know, this is essentially putting an unconstitutional condition on the right of somebody to exercise their jury trial right. But the Supreme Court accepts it and, and accepts it largely because by the time the court takes these cases in the early 70s, plea bargaining is kind of part of our system. It's what's making things work. We're not spending a lot of money on um, prosecutors and trials. And so really the government is looking for this fast and easy way uh, to get cases processed. Um, but you know, you can't have justice on the cheap. So it, it's really a false sense of, of having anything remotely close to it. And, and not having jury trials, not having the community in there as a check, really there's a few really negative consequences of that that I wanna highlight. Um, so, so the first one is when you put the prosecutor in a position 
where he or she is able to decide exactly what sentence should be imposed. And, and a mandatory minimum is going to allow a prosecutor to do that because if the prosecutor says, I'm charging you with something that has a 10-year mandatory minimum and you are found guilty of that, you get 10 years, no matter what the judge thinks about your case. So in those negotiations, prosecutors know that they have tremendous leverage over people um, and tremendous ability to choose what the sentence will ultimately be. And that basically makes the prosecutor the, the judge in the case, um, as well as the law enforcement officer who's bringing it. And they have started... Um, They've gotten used to it, I guess, is what uh, what I want to say about that. And really take offense if if you suggest that there should be another actor in there second guessing their judgment. They see themselves as experts. They see them um, as the right person to make decisions about these cases, which is exactly the danger that the framers were trying to guard against. Because we don't want the government making those decisions without there being kind of a community protection in there to make sure it's appropriate. But instead, what you have now, because the government has so much power, is you can see in uh, legislators acro uh, across the country, including in Congress, prosecutors going in and asking for increases in sentences, for mandatory minimums to be imposed. And they come out and they admit it and say, we want this because this is how we get people to cooperate with us. This is how we get people to plead guilty, right? They don't want to go to trial. They say, this is what we need to do our jobs. And so the result of that is that legislatures, because they don't want to appear soft on crime, they want to agree with what prosecutors are asking, they raise punishments so that it's, um, Bill Stunts kind of famously observed that um, what you see in the statute books is like the sticker price on a car. You know, no one goes into a car dealership and thinks that's actually the price of the car. You know, you're supposed to kind of haggle uh, with the person who's selling it. You know, that is not how we should have our criminal justice system working, but that's actually the truth. Those statutory numbers aren't what anybody thinks should be imposed. And the only time they are is when someone has the audacity to exercise their constitutional right to go to trial. Um, that's the price tag that is put on it. And the result of that is that people who go to trial get penalties that are so disproportionate to what they have done. Um, and then people who plead guilty get what the prosecutor thinks is an appropriate sanction for something. And I think when we think about um, what prosecutors are choosing as an appropriate sanction, the thing they're weighing most heavily in that, and this is something that uh, David and Kevin already mentioned as well, is how does it make their job easier, right? Because what they're really valuing is not having to go to trial, right? They don't want to have to do that. And so that is something they place a premium on. And so it becomes the number one sentencing factor. And I think if you ask any average person in America, hey, what do you think is the most important thing when we sentence somebody? They might say, well, what was the person's mental state or what kind of harm did they cause? I don't think you would find anyone other than perhaps a prosecutor say, oh, the number one thing should be how hard did what they do make the life of the prosecutor? But, you know, that's the plea bargaining setup that we currently have right now. Um, and then one last thing that I just want to mention about this is that it's not just that the prosecution asks for people to plead guilty in exchange for the reduced sentence. People have to waive all kinds of rights as well. So in order to get that deal that the prosecutor is offering you, you have to waive your right uh, to appeal. So you can't raise const other constitutional rights that might have been violated. Um, and so those things are never put to the test in courtrooms. Um, and so that means in addition to kind of not being able to police punishment and having the jury understand what's going on in these cases, we're also not getting sufficient 
appeals and decisions about things that the government might be doing, whether it's disclosing exculpatory evidence or the way they conducted a search, um, uh, effective assistance of counsel, whatever it is, because people have to waive all that as part of the bargain, we're really undermining all kinds of constitutional rights, not just the the jury trial right. Um, so I'll stop there because I'd love to hear what questions people have. But um, but I agree with the others. This is just really, we, we're getting kind of everything backward in the name of a kind of cheap efficiency. Um, but it's, it's nothing resembling justice. Thanks so much. Uh, I want to remind people in the audience that uh, uh, we are eager to get your questions. We've already received a number of questions, but you can ask either on Twitter using the hashtag CatoCJ. You can also ask uh, through Facebook. So one question uh, that has come in that I think is definitely worth talking about, and Rachel, maybe you can start off, and I bet David probably has something to say about this as well. The um, original rationale or a, ma a major rationale for mandatory minimums was to bring greater consistency to sentencing. So for example, you didn't have a situation where somebody gets a quote unquote bleeding heart judge and they get a relatively uh, mild punishment. Somebody who uh, did the exact same crime uh, has a more hardcore judge and they get a much different sentence. There are also some uh, states, of course, a small handful of states in which juries are still responsible uh, for sentencing. Um, what do you think about this argument uh, that mandatory minimums uh, uh, either were intended to, or in fact, have delivered greater consistency uh, in sentencing. So we don't see this significant differential in the way that uh, similarly situated defendants are treated. Rachel? Uh, so I do think that was the intent. I, I think there was this notion that whether you got judge lenient or judge harsh um, mattered in your case somehow what people didn't factor in when they were thinking about that is the prosecutor. So I don't know exactly how it got lost in the consideration, but um, if you look at how mandatory minimums are actually applied uh, in the country, what you find is now it depends on whether you get prosecutor harsh or prosecutor lenient. And there's enormous geographic disparities. There's disparities based on which prosecutor you draw in an office. Um, we had really good, I, I was on the uh, United States Sentencing Commission and we had all kinds of studies um, that looked at things like when do prosecutors seek to get this enhancement that uh, effectively doubles your mandatory minimum wild disparities around the country in terms of which offices were seeking it and which ones weren't. So although the intent might have been to eliminate disparities, it actually exacerbated them. And it also exacerbated them on the basis of race. Um, so, you know, one of the main goals wasn't just kind of to even out what judges were doing, but there was a, a significant concern with, with racial disparities. And sadly, we've seen those exacerbated with mandatory minimums as well, far more likely um, to apply to people of color uh, than to people who are white. Um, and all of that has gotten worse since they've been instituted. So they have been an abject failure of the of fulfilling that goal of reducing disparity. Would you like to add anything, David? Yeah, I, I would. And, and I want to echo what Rachel said. And of course, it's really important um, that we, we, we judge whether consistency is a good thing or a bad thing. I mean, we could set up a system where we say, listen, all robberies are going to get 20 years every time, no matter what. I don't think anybody would be in favor of a system like that. What's the old quote? quote consistency is the hobgoblin of simple minds or something like that. But in any event, it doesn't achieve consistency. And, and we want judges to judge. So 
I think consistency is a bad thing because it doesn't allow judges to take into account who is this person before me? Have they done good works in the past? Um, have, do they have a family? All the things that we want judges to look at as judges, as opposed to shifting, as Rachel says, the power to prosecutors to determine a sentence. Um, to me, it's a no-brainer. We want judges determining sentences, and we don't want them to be consistent. We want them to look at uh, factors like um, good works in the past, how serious is the crime, and so on, and, and really examine the individual person before them. I think this probably supports your point, David, but the actual quote, as I recall it, is that a foolish consistency is the hobgoblin of little minds. So perhaps that's exactly on point. Kevin, um, mandatory minimums represents half the name uh, of your organization, Families Against Mandatory Minimums. I feel certain you must have something to say about them. So why don't you take a moment and, and share some thoughts about the significance of mandatory minimums to your organization and how you think they fit in more broadly? Well, I don't have the time to do say everything I'd want to say. I just I just want to, as an initial matter, what I always say is everything about them is a fraud. They're not mandatory because the prosecutor decides who to bring them against. Uh, they're not minimum by any stretch because every year politicians, you know, put them higher and higher. They're always drafted for the worst case scenario. And then after a while, they get applied to everybody. And so uh, something that Dave was talking about, um, you know, this idea of disparity or consistency. I mean, I think for the most part, consistency is a good idea. We want similarly situated people to get, you know, roughly the same penalties as long as we can consider all the facts and circumstances. The problem is, um, you know, lawmakers can't foresee all the circumstances in which a, a, a creative prosecutor are going to apply these penalties to. So, you know, when people think about child pornography, child pornography, for instance, is like the most heinous thing they can think of. And they think of somebody, you know, in a barn making these lurid films and abusing children. And they think, yes, we need a 20 year mandatory minimum at the federal level. Those people should never see the light of day. And then all of a sudden you find out that a 16 year old high school sophomore is sexting with her uh, freshman in college boyfriend. And now they've created child pornography and are subject to the same penalty. You realize that we should have a little humility that when we're gonna impose a one size fits all punishment on a broad category of activities that we're not gonna foresee all the activities it's gonna be applied to. And so our problem now is not that we have wild, unwarranted disparities, it's that we have sort of a terrible, rigid uniformity that is jacking up sentences for people who don't deserve it. So I just think everything that mandatory minimums was based on is a fraud. As Rachel said, they're not mandatory because the prosecutor is going to decide who they get applied to. Um, so I, it's just a colossal mistake. What Congress did before mandatory minimums was passed was pass guidelines, which were supposed to give judges some sense, some guidelines, some guidance, which made some sense. Um, but then to still fashion a sentence that was unique to the individual person. And we've gotten away from that. Thanks, Kevin. Um, before we get off the subject, uh, there is a question from Facebook uh, that asks, um, is there any way to repeal mandatory minimum sentences? I believe there has been some progress uh, on that front, certainly not as much as some of us would like to see. Um, but Rachel, could you um, sort of fill us in? Yeah, I mean, they're legislative creations, and so they can, they're Frankenstein's monster. Frankenstein can make them go away. Um, and we have seen 
some mandatory minimums, uh, the length of them cut uh, in the First Step Act, for example. So, you know, we saw some of them get reduced. Um, one of the mandatory minimums that was a life sentence was reduced to 30 years. Um, and previously, Congress got rid of a mandatory minimum, which was a five-year mandatory minimum for just possessing crack cocaine, not dealing it, just possessing it for use. Um, Congress got rid of that one as well. So it is possible to do that. States have done it too. We've seen some mandatory minimum reform in various states around the country. Um, here in New York, um, Michigan, other places have rolled back some of their mandatory minimums. Um, you know, one thing I think that maybe is worth mentioning is that people talk about bipartisan support for criminal justice reform and they sometimes forget there's bipartisan support to keep things exactly as it exists. And so an obstacle, at least at the federal level, to getting more significant mandatory minimum reform has been that prosecutors don't want to do it. And that's prosecutors in Democratic administrations as well as Republican ones, because there was an effort to, to do more for mandatory minimum reform in the Obama administration. And, you know, the Obama Department of Justice was opposed to that, um, was not supportive of getting rid of all mandatory minimums. And that's that's one reason why we kind of ultimately got the First Step Act and how it, it ultimately rolled out was because we didn't have more robust support for ending mandatory minimums, you know, even when we had a Democrat in office who was a self-proclaimed criminal justice reformer. You know, President Obama wrote a law review article about how much he loved criminal justice reform. but. Um, um, but I think it's worth noting that the Department of Justice was adamant to wanting to keep mandatory minimums um, even then. And so we didn't get the broader reform. And that's the sticking point to getting it anywhere. So, yes, legislatures could do it. Um, but wherever they've considered it, there has been widespread and vocal prosecutor opposition to doing so. Hey, Clark, Thanks I think so it's worth mentioning, too. Uh, I, I just want to mention that, you know, Texas doesn't have mandatory minimum sentences. Um, I don't think anyone thinks of Texas as this soft on crime state, but they don't have mandatory sentences. And so to the extent that people think of them as a proxy for being tough on crime, it's just not true. Um, you can get justice um, and even pretty tough justice without having mandatory sentences. And I think part of this is just a skepticism that is still in the country, in the culture about judges. We think we can't trust judges to make these decisions. We ignore the fact that we trust judges to dismiss indictments, uh, to exclude, you know, sort of damning evidence that could tilt the outcome of a trial. So we give judges all this power, but for some reason we have it in our head that if they have control over some portion of sentencing, it's going to lead to catastrophe. And it's just not true. And Clark, just, just to add in there, you know, to, to, to ask the question, why are prosecutors against getting rid of min, minimum mandatory sentences? As Rachel said, it's the prosecutors who are against getting rid of them. The, the reason they're opposed to getting rid of them is not because they want to be tough on crime. No, it's because they want to pressure people into pleading guilty. You would think minimum mandatory sentences would lead to um, more trials, but they don't. They, they uh, tend away from trials because prosecutors have the power to waive the minimum mandatory sentence and charge something else. So it just shifts the power away from judges to prosecutors. They want the power and they want to force people to plead. And that's why they're against it. Thanks, David. And I want to stick with you. Uh, there are a couple of practical questions that came in that um, I think probably a number of people in the audience would benefit from that I think you can clarify pretty quickly. And I'd ask, like to ask uh, you and 
probably the rest of the panel a more policy-oriented question. So David, the two practical questions are first, can you just briefly explain, explain to people what uh, is Brady material? You made reference to it uh, earlier uh, when you were doing your opening and you mentioned that there is um, a real problem in your experience with prosecutors failing to produce quote unquote Brady material. So tell us a little bit more about that. And then the second question is, um, is there are there significant differences in your experience between how uh, uh, plea bargaining and mandatory minimums work in the state system versus the federal system. Um, putting aside, or not not putting aside, but including um, uh, uh, Kevin's point that uh, at least in some states there aren't mandatory minimums. So first tell us a little bit more about Brady and then tell us if you see significant differences between state and federal practice. Sure, so, so Brady material is material that uh, helps to show someone's innocence. And, and the crazy thing is, that again, prosecutors are in control of what material gets disclosed. So you would think that in a criminal case, everything should be turned over to the defense. What's the evidence out there? What, what's, what do you have against uh, the defendant? And the prosecutor should have to turn that over. But instead, prosecutors get to make the decision about what constitutes uh, Brady material or, or evidence that tends to help the defendant. And when a defendant goes to the judge and says, judge, I'd like to see what so-and-so witness is saying. I believe it might help me. Um, the judge typically says, well, that's really up to the prosecutor. I can't really get involved in that. And so oftentimes people go to trial. Um, and if they lose, they find out after that witness so-and-so would have helped. And, and then after it's too late because the judge says, well, the evidence was overwhelming. So uh, that material would not have changed anything. Um, so Brady material is evidence that uh, would have helped uh, or a defendant could have made an argument that it could have helped at trial, exculpatory material. In terms of the second question, the differences between the state and the federal systems, I mean, Kevin hit on one of them. I practice in Florida. We have minimum mandatory sentences here, um, and and they're charged all the time. I, I, the difference that I see um, in state and federal court, and I practice mostly in federal court, is in state court, um, prosecutors have, I think, a little bit more flexibility in terms of when to waive those minimum mandatory sentences. Um, and so they can they can file waivers uh, much more quickly and eat more easily than in federal court, uh, where there's all kinds of approval necessary in, in Fedland. Um, but again, I guess the one consistency between the two is if somebody's willing to plead, um, both prosecutors in both systems will get it done to, to waive the min-man and allow that plea to happen. Thanks so much. I also want to thank our audience. Uh, I, I am, um, as the moderator, I'm uh, seeing the questions as they come in, and we're just getting some absolutely fantastic questions. Uh, I will absolutely do my best uh, to get uh, to your question. Forgive me if I haven't had a chance to do that yet. Fortunately, some people are asking, uh, or, or some questions are coming up from multiple questioners, so I'm going to tackle some of those. Um, keep in mind that you can submit your questions through various social media, including Facebook, uh, YouTube, also uh, Twitter. Uh, use the uh, hashtag CatoCJ. So um, a question that has come up from a couple of different people uh, that I think we really need to, to dive into if we're going to have a serious discussion about the role of plea bargaining in American criminal justice um, is the concern that has been uh, repeatedly uh, raised, uh, including by some Supreme Court justices, that the system would, quote unquote, grind to a halt uh, if there were no plea bargaining and every defendant exercise their constitutional right to a jury trial. In other words, we would overwhelm the system uh, because of the 
the expense and the uh, necessarily resource intensive nature uh, of jury trials. Simply put, it is far easier uh, and quicker and cheaper to get a, a conviction through a plea bargain than it is through a jury trial. Why don't we go around the room, uh, so to speak, and talk about this question of whether um, the either elimination, I don't think, by the way, that, that it's practical to eliminate plea bargaining, but let's say a substantial reduction in the amount of plea bargaining that happens in the system. Um, are these fears that, that the system would be overwhelmed um, valid? And, and what might we say in response to people who raise those concerns? Rachel, why don't we start with you? Uh, well, so I would say you could make that argument about all kinds of constitutional protections that we have. Voting is really expensive um, and very difficult. And wouldn't it be easier uh, if somebody could just, you know, one person could pick our leader? And of course, we would say no, because that's a foundational principle of our democratic republic that people vote. And I think too many people have lost how foundational it is to have the protection of a jury before the government can take away somebody's liberty. Um, so while it is true that jury trials are more cumbersome than what we have now, um, they bring a real value. And one thing I would say is, there is a reason that we have been able to get 2.3 million people incarcerated in America and that we have more than 7 million under criminal justice supervision and we have hundreds of thousands of crimes. And that is because we have allowed plea bargaining to make the processing of all these cases super fast and we do it on the cheap. And if it turned out that you actually had to force the government to bring a case and bear its burden of proof and convince you know, 12 ordinary people drawn from the community, I think what you would find is we wouldn't have so many ridiculous crimes on the books. And we wouldn't have the kind of excessive policing of things that frankly communities don't really care about. And we would deal with a whole lot of things outside the criminal justice process. And we would deal with them as civil matters or um, as, as public health matters. And we would just reserve the criminal process for the most serious kinds of things that take place. And if we did that, you wouldn't see the system grind to a halt. What you would see in instead is it focusing on the very things that do the most to tear at the fabric of a community. And in those cases, they would be brought before juries. And, and I will also just add that, you know, it's not the case that defendants couldn't still choose to plead guilty and kind of hope that um, judges might give them a break for doing so, right? You, you could still kind of have some of that dynamic, whether or not we said um, prosecutors could put this really exorbitant price tag on going to a jury trial. So, so there, there's something between what we have now, which is frankly just an, a way too fast moving mass production of using the criminal law. It should be more difficult than that uh, before the government can take away people's liberty. And it's precisely because I think the Supreme Court took all the guardrails off that we have the bloated excess that we have today. So I actually think it would be a really good thing to bring in some more of a rationalizing limit on the resource. You know, if you know it takes a lot of resources, maybe you think twice before you decide to, you know, make a federal case out of somebody, um, you know, jumping a turnstile or, you know, doing something, these kind of very minor things that just overflow our courtrooms every day with the mass production of plea bargaining. I think they would be dealt with in other ways. And I think we'd have a healthier society as a result. So David, I'm gonna, um bring this over to you now, and I'm going to slightly reframe the question in a way that um, hopefully will, will enable us to dig a little deeper here. Um, I think sometimes people have this sort of misconception uh, that, that in a well-functioning system, 
uh, prosecutors essentially prosecute every single crime that occurs. Uh, but in reality, that's not what happens. And in fact, first of all, not all crimes are solved. So we know that the clearance rates for violent crimes and also property crimes are surprisingly low, particularly in many big cities. Um, but even when crimes are solved, even when the government believes they have found the perpetrator of a crime, it doesn't always make sense uh, for there to be a prosecution. Prosecutors exercise significant discretion in deciding which cases to bring and which cases to decline. Do you think there's anything categorically different about including, for example, um, resources, just resource constraints in that uh, sort of list of considerations that prosecutors bring to bear on, and on the decision of whether to proceed with the case. And I've got a follow-up, but let's start with that. Sure. So, and, and I'm going to echo a lot of what Rachel said, because it's just, a, it's just so bloated right now in terms of what we're doing. I mean, the crazy thing is courthouses by and large are empty. Um, there are not trials going on. There, so these huge new courthouses that we built all around the country are really just being used for uh, 20 to 30 minute plea hearings and then sentencing hearings 90 days later. There are not trials going on like there were in the 70s and 80s. And, and it's, we're, we're so addicted to plea bargaining and to putting people in jail that we've forgotten sort of where we came from. And so in terms of resources, of course, we don't need to be charging every uh, thing that we think is a crime. In fact, we're charging so many things now that the feds have have charged Aunt Becky with uh, cheating on a test. I mean, that is a perfect example. The, the, the resources being expended in Boston for charging all those people for SAT violations could have been handled so much better. In the Southern District of New York, known for used to, they, they were known for going after mobsters and the biggest drug dealers, instead charged um, college basketball players with taking a couple hundred bucks on the side. It, it is insane the way we're using our resources. And, and instead of having um, cases fought and going to trial, um, where we could test those cases out, so many people are pleading guilty because, again, like we talked about, the consequences are too high. So, so you know, resources are being used in all the wrong ways um, because we've become addicted to people pleading guilty and being sent off to jail. Kevin, I'm going to kick it over to you this time and ask you yet another variation of this question. Um, I um, was speaking to a friend of mine who's a former prosecutor and also a former criminal defense attorney, and I asked him if, in, in his view, um, the average cost of a felony prosecution that includes a jury trial uh, consumes more than, let's say, $100,000 in resources, uh, including the cost of, of the prosecutor's time, the courtroom time, uh, the jurors taking however much time off of work is necessary. And he said, oh, absolutely. A felony prosecution uh, uh, that includes a jury trial would cost more than $100,000. I then asked him if he thought that the average uh, uh, conviction obtained by a guilty plea would cost the state or the, the federal government less than $10,000. And he said, yeah, I thought it probably would. So if we're getting if we're getting convictions for you know 10 cents on the dollar, could one make a case, and would you like to make the case, that if the government's not willing to spend the full constitutional amount, meaning um, uh, you know, a, a, a mechanism that includes a jury trial, maybe the government's not serious enough to put somebody in a cage if they're not willing to spend the money to get it done the constitutionally prescribed way. What do you think about that? Kevin, I think you're on mute. Kevin. Darn it. I'm the first one to violate it. Sorry. Um, yeah, I think it's, 
it's ironic that we hear the cost benefit argument only at this time, right? I mean, I've, I've been on the Hill, I've heard what Rachel said before, that uh, the prosecutors sort of associations will go up and tell lawmakers, we need to get these plea deals because we can't, you know, th that expense of taking everyone to trial. It's funny because when we go up there and we talk about how sentencing people to 20, 30 years in prison when there's no evidence that it's keeping us safer and that we could do less and have more money to do either other law enforcement things or sort of social services, we're told that we can't put a price tag on justice. You know, that at that point it is obscene to be talking about dollars and cents. This is about public safety. And yet that's precisely the argument they make when we say, why do we have all these coerced plea deals? It's, it's also, well, we can't afford otherwise. And so I think it's ironic that it's the uh, prosecutors who make the argument about costs and benefits at that time and then ignore it in other times. Um, but I, I do think, look, I, I agree with you all that there will be plea deals. Um, and in many cases, that's going to be a good thing for a defendant. And I'm sure David has seen this. The problem that I don't think what people understand is to the extent that there's some you know, sort of just sentence for a defendant, that if they committed some offense and somebody comes to them, think of Eric Wyant in this story, and they said, we're gonna offer you three years, um, or that this crime carries, you know, X number of years, to cooperate and save us the cost of putting you to trial and the rest, we're willing to give you, you know, minus one or minus two. That's the inducement they need, okay? What happens in our system is, not only do you get a benefit for pleading, but if you don't cooperate and plead, it goes much higher there. So the delta is huge. It's not as if we're saying the government should not incentivize people to plead guilty and take responsibility. Those are not bad things. It's just that the cost of not doing it is so great, exponentially higher. And that's where the injustice occurs. Now Clark's on mute. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I was gonna. I was saying that I think we we owe it to the audience to try to end uh, on a somewhat optimistic note. We're about twenty minutes out from where we were planning on on uh, stopping. But um, so I've got a series of questions that might move us in the direction of at least you know some hope of redemption. Um, the first one that that uh, comes from our audience that I, I think is. Uh, <laughs> I'm very encouraged to see somebody ask the question. The question was, what can we young prosecutors do, if anything, to ameliorate uh, some of the problems that you have been discussing? Um, and I think, uh, let's start just, maybe we all have something to say about it, but, but David, can you think of anything that, you know, a sort of a young idealistic prosecutor can do if they, if they are concerned with what was presented in the video and the things that we've discussed here today? Sure. I guess my my first bit of advice is um, it's not too late to leave and join the public defender's office. Um, so so no, I, I, th there are lots and lots of very good prosecutors out there, and and I have found that dealing with young prosecutors is much better than dealing with folks who have been there forever and who've become sort of bitter and jaded. As a young prosecutor, I guess my advice would be just to be open, um, turn everything over and return phone calls, um, as crazy as that sounds. Th those are sort of the easy ones um, to do. And, and I think, you know, I, I guess my, my, my ultimate advice, and, and I don't know if this is doable, would be if there's a way, if you're thinking about being a prosecutor, 
to spend a little time with a defense lawyer for a couple of weeks or even on one case, take a tour of the jail, see what it's like in there before you ask to send somebody away to prison for years. I mean, just to feel what it's like for a couple of hours inside, I think will be pretty eye-opening and jarring um, for, for you prosecutors out there. Evan or Rachel, would, it, would you like to add anything? Why don't you go, Rachel? Okay. Um, so I would say I would not seek a punishment at trial. That you, I think that should be whatever you think the right punishment should be. That should be the one that you seek if someone goes to trial. And then you should work back from that uh, to arrive at what you think someone should get as a discount for pleading guilty. And I think right now it doesn't work that way. I think the idea is um, prosecutors assume, I think this person should get sentence X, but you only get that sentence if you plead guilty. And if you go to trial, I'm going to give you more. And, and so I really think it's a question of really thinking about what the appropriate penalty would be. Assume that you have to go to trial to get that one, um, but you'll give a discount off of that if somebody pleads guilty. Um, that would be one. Um, two would be, I don't think it's ever appropriate to ask somebody to waive their right to an appeal for constitutional violations. I think, you know, I would take a long, hard look in the mirror and ask yourself if this is the career you really wanted, where you're asking people to bargain away their ability to make valid constitutional claims on appeal. I, I just don't think that should be part of it. And I understand maybe your office has adopted that as a policy, uh, but I would really encourage you to raise that with your office as being really antithetical to the kind of profession that you thought you were entering uh, before you got into this business. Um, and then I just want to echo what David said, which is to, to turn things over. Um, you know, if plea bargaining and that decision is really the centerpiece of our criminal process these days, and I think it is, then defendants should know what exculpatory evidence you have when they're making that decision. And, um, you know, we've seen some offices around the country do that. And, and I would encourage you to encourage your office to do that if they're not doing it already, because um, that will make everybody's life better. And it will also help you avoid convicting somebody who is actually innocent. That's a great note uh, for you to finish up on because there's a question I think we have to address uh, in a discussion of this nature and we'd be remiss if we didn't. Um, Kevin somewhat alluded to it in his own, um, uh, you know, sort of discussion about his own experience, but um, how confident should we be that innocent people are in fact being coerced into pleading guilty to crimes that they did not commit? Kevin, do we know anything about that? We do. I mean, this is something I, I, I think you know, I, I didn't myself believe happened with the frequency it does, but we now know because the Innocence Project, when it has exonerated people through DNA evidence, we know that 18% of all exonerees had pleaded guilty to crimes they didn't commit. So we know for a fact that it happens. And as you said, I mean, I, I felt the pull to do it. Two of the people who testified against me later recanted their testimony uh, between my trials. Um, because the pressure is so great. And I think we shouldn't, you know, this is just human nature. There's no reason to think that people wouldn't do it um, because the, the incentive to, to, you know, plead guilty when you're innocent is great. And I would just say uh, along these lines about the discussion of prosecutors, I think there are good and bad prosecutors just as there are good and bad bakers and lawmakers and lawyers and, uh, you know, gardeners. And I think we, 
are wrong to focus on. I'm glad that prosecutor asked the question about how they can do better. But I don't think having a more self-aware fox watching the hen house is the answer. I, I, I mean, I think we have a bad system. So no matter how vigilant that person is to govern their own motives, when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And so the reform that we need to do is to restore checks and balances. And so I agree with the solutions that Rachel and David mentioned. And I think they're you know, not seeking trial penalties is a smart thing, turning over evidence, realizing that the person that you're prosecuting is a human being who has family members and lives in a community and could be you someday is worthwhile. But I just never think that those sort of personal things are going to take uh, precedence over changing a bad system. All right, uh, David, I, I have to ask this, this uh, I have, or I have to uh, um, hand this question over to you because I think it's a great one and it would be a shame if we didn't answer it. Uh, the question is simply this from one of our listeners. How do defense lawyers stay sane? Ha! <laughs> um, I could say a lot of great uh, bourbon, but that's this is probably the wrong place to say that. Um, you know, you know what? I've always been a defense lawyer. I've never been a prosecutor. I've never uh, done civil work. I love what I do. Um, I love fighting for people. I love fighting for the underdog, um, and I love fighting what I believe is an unjust system. So if if you want, if, if for the law students out there, or people considering going into law, I can't think of a better thing to do than be a criminal defense lawyer as not just the greatest part of lawyering, but really one of the great professions. Um, it is exciting. When you go to dinner, by the way, everybody wants to talk about your cases. They don't want to talk about probate matters or anything else. So you will be the talk of the town and it is the most fun thing to do. And it is the most rewarding job that you can have. So um, I would urge everybody to uh, join the public defender's office and then become a criminal defense lawyer. You will love it. Right now, I propose that we sort of turn in earnest to the um, optimistic portion of the program, um, and but I'm going to set it up in my sort of characteristically sardonic way. Um, so it seems to me that um, we could we could describe plea bargaining as a kind of a condition. Let's say it were a medical condition. Um, the kinds of things that you might be prepared to do and to fight a common cold would not be as extreme as the kinds of things that you might be willing to do to, you know, to try to treat somebody with a very aggressive form of cancer. I happen to think that the way plea bargaining now works in our system is much more akin to a very aggressive form of cancer. I think plea bargaining has become arguably one of the top two or three pathologies in American criminal justice. I think it is almost uh, unavoidably coercive, and I think that undermines both the moral and the political authority of our system. Uh, I invite anybody to comment or push back if they have a different view, but I also invite, uh, if you don't have a strongly opposed view, to maybe embrace that framing a little bit and uh, in the spirit of saying, okay, if this really is, this being Amer modern American-style uh, plea bargaining, uh, as much of a concern as, as it seems that we agree that it is, um, what can we do? to ameliorate the coerciveness of plea bargaining and ultimately to bring back uh, the jury trial as a significant feature of the criminal justice system. Is there anything that can be done um, to sort of change the status quo and get us back to the, the system that the, the founders of this country 
uh, very clearly had in mind uh, when they put criminal participation in the administration of criminal justice at the very heart of the system. Let's start at the sort of the 20 or 30,000 uh, foot level. And um, Rachel, would you like to offer some thoughts? Sure, I always get the 30,000 foot thing. I don't, I don't like heights either, Clark. So <laughs> um, I will say that, so I'm with you 100% in viewing it as a cancer. Um, but thinking about the politics of what actually could be done, you know, I, I think we're probably not gonna have the aggressive treatment that you or I might prefer. Um, so I think the key is to get rid of the leverage that prosecutors have. Um, and so if we're thinking about how do you get rid of prosecutorial leverage, you get rid of mandatory minimum sentences, you get rid of pretrial detention. Um, you know, we have only kind of alluded to the fact, uh, and, you know, I know David mentioned this as well, you know, so people who are detained pretrial, if they're given an offer of time served, you get out to plead guilty, um, you know, they'll do it. Uh, so it's a, it's a huge hammer for prosecutors. Um, and, you know, it shouldn't depend on how much money you have to pay. We should not have cash bail. We should dramatically curtail pretrial detention. It, it doesn't help for public safety. Um, and it gives prosecutors this leverage. So I think you get rid of mandatory minimums, you get rid of pretrial detention, um, you give defendants a right to open file discovery so they actually see the case against them so they can make an educated guess about whether or not they really should go to trial. Um, you have other checks in the system. So you really do have robust second looks at somebody's sentence. You know, you have a robust system of parole and of clemency. So it's not like the prosecutors say is the final one. Um, and then the, the kind of last thing I'll mention, although I, I frankly have a laundry list, but I wanna hear from others. Um, you know, one of the reasons we got to this point is because most of the people in this system who are making key decisions were themselves former prosecutors. So our, our judiciary is largely dominated by people who themselves were prosecutors, and I think they may have a hard time seeing that there's anything wrong with this. Um, and so when cases come to them, it's kind of business as usual, and they're not as skeptical as I think we should want our judges to be. Um, so I think another reform that is doable, that is feasible, is to really try to even out our bench so that it's not just prosecutors all the way down, you know, in the state courts, on the federal bench. Um, you know, there are also our politicians. Lots of our politicians were former prosecutors as well. So it's it's really kind of the dominant policymaking profession. And I think we need to make a more concerted effort to change that. And I think when we do, um, it, it would change the perspective that people have when these cases come forward. You know, the next time a case comes forward and the question is, does a prosecutor have to disclose exculpatory evidence before a defendant pleads guilty? I have a feeling if you have a judge who was a defense lawyer, um, they view it differently than if you have a judge who was a prosecutor. Thanks for that. Um, David, I'm going to kick it over to you with this, basically the same question, but um, our friend uh, Carissa Hessick, uh, who's a professor at UNC Law School, and you and I were on a panel uh, with her uh, last month, um, she asks about bringing back uh, a system of trials as well, but she points out that uh, when the federal sentencing guidelines became voluntary, and those are her scare quotes, not mine, um, we didn't see more trials. So um, she asks, is the current system um, just too entrenched, or is there something really that could be done? What do you think? Well, well, I want to echo, of course, all the things that Rachel said, including getting more defenders on the bench, because it's just crazy that um, there's so few and, and you know, the, the title former prosecutor gets you elevated so quickly. I think that's a huge thing, actually. Um, but to me, I don't think we are so entrenched that we can't turn um, the tanker around. And, and I think the number one thing that we should do is eliminate the trial tax. And, and you know, we've all spoken about that for the past hour. 
Um, but to me, that's the most important thing. If you go to trial, you're going to get whacked, whether the guidelines are mandatory or not. Um, they're just so manipulated by prosecutors and judges to punish those who go to trial. And so the first thing we need to do is eliminate that trial tax and make sure um, that if you go to trial, you're not going to get a sentence five, six, seven, ten times what it is if you plead. And there are ways to do that. Um, and, and it should be announced before trial what sentences are, are out there, um, what people are looking at. It shouldn't be so up in the air that you don't find out what you're really looking at until too late. And so to me, if we could eliminate the trial tax, I think we could get more folks going to trial, which is what we need and what I think everybody wants. I mean, even you prosecutors out there, don't you, didn't you go to law school? Didn't you become prose, uh, prosecutors so that you could try cases, not so that you could plead people out and become sentencing lawyers. I mean, we all want to try cases. So I would urge uh, my prosecutor friends out there to, to not ask for those trial penalties. Yeah, I, two points really quickly. I actually did a poll on, on Twitter uh, where I asked people uh, who were interested in being prosecutors whether they would prefer to work in a system like ours, uh, where more than uh, 97 point, I think 4% of all criminal convictions in the federal system come from plea bargains. Would they rather work in that system or they're there, would they rather work in a system where most cases went to trial? And I'll tell you, the results were not even close. Everybody wanted to work in the system with more trials. And as a former trial lawyer, I, I understand why that is because it, it, it's, it, it's, quite a, it's quite an adrenaline rush, a lot of effort, but it's worth it. Um, David, you and I talked about this uh, offline, and I'd, I'd love to give you a chance to comment uh, if you want to. And if not, we'll just go right over to Kevin. But um, the um, the prosecutors in the Varsity Blues case, this is the uh, college admission scandal uh, that is still ongoing. Do you think it would be rather awkward for them to have to be in front of a jury and explain why it is that they were offering two weeks to two months uh, as a punishment for defendants who pled guilty, but then threatening other defendants with 20 years if they exercise their right to trial? You know, Clark, th thanks for bringing that up. I, I think this is a, a very, very important point and one that we haven't discussed too much yet today, which is jurors do not know the punishments um, that defendants will receive if they find someone guilty. They're told that it's not up to them. They shouldn't consider it. They absolutely should be told. They should know the consequences of their actions and they should know what the plea offers were and what people are looking at by exercising their right to trial. Um, don't we want jurors to have all the information that's only fair. And if they knew, I guarantee that would help um, the acquittal rates. And it would also help people feel more comfortable going to trial so that jurors would have all of that information, knowing that there's a minimum mandatory out there, knowing that they turned down a sentence of two months and now are facing 10 years. It may also make prosecutors um, less likely to charge those crazy sentences. So I'd be interested in, in hearing Kevin's thoughts on on how that worked in his case, but I think jurors should absolutely know the consequences of, of what a guilty verdict would mean. Yeah, let's go to Kevin. And um, just really quickly, I'd like to add that um, <clears throat> based on all the reading that I have done, it appears to me that during the founding era, it was understood that jurors would know what the consequences would be for the defendant if they convict because sentencing law wasn't nearly as complex as it is now. Um, so I like to refer to a jury that knows the consequences for the defendant if they convict as a founding era informed jury. And I like to remind my conservative friends who claim to be originalists that that was the original uh, function uh, and mindset uh, of American juries. Um, 
uh, and of course, I like to remind them that of that at every turn. Uh, but Kevin, um, why don't you, you know, sort of volley this at the net, if you would? What thoughts do you have uh, about what David said, or um, other ideas for bringing back uh, the the jury trial as a significant uh, mechanism for adjudicating criminal charges in our system the way it was meant to be? Yeah, sure. A couple quick thoughts. Um, one is this is another example where. Uh, law enforcement talks out of both sides of it, uh, both sides of its mouth. You know, it says that the, the public demands these punishments. That's why they seek them. And then they say, but the 12 people who actually know the facts and circumstances of this case cannot be trusted to know what the punishment is because they wouldn't go along for it. So it's a total disconnect. You cannot believe both are true. In my own case, after I was convicted, a second, my first trial hung, second trial, I was convicted of half the counts. And after the jury left, uh, a reporter from the AP interviewed some of them and said, you know, what do you think is the right punishment? Because the prosecutors are seeking 20 years. And my jury was floored by that. And they had seen a parade of witnesses come who cooperated and got probation. And they thought I was looking at probation or a year in prison. And they didn't know that. So, you know, I sort of saw it firsthand. Uh, that that why it would be helpful for a jury to know. Uh, to your point, I'm not going to lecture at Cato Institute on economics. If you tax something more, you get less of it. So if we want more trials, we have to stop taxing it the way we do it. Um, uh, to Chris's point, um, I was an unusual defendant. I was law school educated. I'd worked on Capitol Hill. Um, and so I knew Booker. I knew that the guidelines were um, voluntary. Uh, but, you know, most people don't. If One, if you're facing a mandatory minimum, it doesn't matter. And a lot of drug cases are mandatory minimums. Um, but otherwise, you know, the idea that my judge had discretion gave me a little comfort and only because I knew what that meant. But the idea that I, I still was rolling the dice. The government was going to ask for this amount of time. I had a judge who, to Rachel's point, had been a, a criminal defense attorney. So she was more skeptical than most of the government. But it's still an incredible chance with your life and your liberty. That the idea that just because the guidelines are voluntary now or discretionary does not give you that much comfort to take that huge risk. Thanks, Kevin. We're just about out of time. I want to thank all of you and all of our uh, listeners uh, for the fantastic questions that we've been getting throughout the event. Um, David and Rachel, I'd like to give each of you a minute to kind of uh, summarize. Uh, David, why don't you start? Uh, Rachel, you finish, and then I'll just, uh, you know, I just have a couple things to say and we'll, we'll wrap up. But thanks again to everybody who's been listening and participating in this hopefully very interesting discussion. Um, David, is there anything you'd like to leave people with? Sure. So th thanks again. Um, to Cato and to FAM for doing this. I, I think, you know, if we can spread that movie so that people see it out there on Twitter, Facebook, social media, um, Cato and FAM are such great organizations dedicated to criminal justice reform, and we need reform. We need criminal justice reform. So to the extent that people watching can support those organizations, uh, support people running on criminal justice reform platforms and vote coming up, um, maybe we can get something done and fix um, a system that needs a lot of fixing. So uh, thanks, everybody, for tuning in. And thanks for a great program, Clark. Thank you. And Rachel, you wrote a whole book called Prisoners of uh, Politics. Um, politics is for is for us, the ordinary citizen. What What can ordinary people do about the problems that we've discussed today, do you think? 
Yeah, I mean, I think voting is key and you should remember in most places that you live, you vote for your district attorney. Um, so you're voting for the person who's setting the policy on things like uh, please and what they do. And when you're making those decisions, you should vote for people who understand this and understand that it's not good for public safety. You know, that's the false bill of goods that I think we've had too many politicians sell the public is that somehow being tougher and coercing these kind of really long sentences uh, make us safer. And, you know, we have mounds of evidence. Uh, I have some in the book um, that it doesn't. It actually undermines public safety. And so I, you know, I would really encourage you to vote for people that understand that and are voting on doing the kinds of things that actually do make communities healthier and safer. Um, and to also, I would just say, um, if you're not already close to these problems because you yourself haven't experienced them or you don't have a loved one who has been incarcerated, um, you know, get closer to the issues and get to know it. This, this is a great way to do it is watching this amazing film. Uh, sometimes we do it through art. Sometimes we do it through our own personal connections. But I think the more you learn about how criminal justice is administered in America, I'm confident the more outraged you will be and the more motivated you will be to go out there to vote, to peacefully protest and demand that things change. Thanks so much, Rachel, David, Kevin. It's been a wonderful discussion. I really appreciate all of you taking the time. Kevin, I wanna congratulate you and your colleagues in particular on an extraordinary and extraordinarily important uh, film. I hope that everybody uh, one day gets a chance to see it and I, it should be mandatory viewing um, in, in every law school as far as I'm concerned. Um, finally, wanna thank the audience for participating in this discussion. Your questions were wonderful. We really appreciate uh, how thoughtful uh, our audience was and how eager they were to participate. And finally, the Cato event staff for uh, making this uh, event uh, possible and making sure that it was uh, smooth and everybody got a chance to uh, ask the questions and, and, and hear this wonderful discussion. So with that, we'll wrap up. Thanks so much to everyone for participating in this discussion today.